This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. All right. It's Paul Verschur with Tony Prescott here for the Convergent Science Network podcast. And we're here with uh, Daniela Stoltzenberg, uh, who was one of the speakers at our uh, school, BCBT school. And you focus very much on maternal behaviors. Yes. So why do you think that that's an interesting paradigm to look at? Um, I Well, I started um, my work in maternal behavior because I was really interested in how um, the brain regulates behavior, social behavior. But I find that maternal behavior is particularly fascinating because there's such a dramatic change uh, in responsiveness uh, for most mammalian females around the time of birth. And so I think it's a question that's interesting um, on several levels. There's mm -hmm. a motivational component. There's a learning component, as I spoke about today. Um, and, uh, and, and I think it's a, a pro-social behavior. Mm -hmm. So I think you're sort of... Um, looking at multiple different aspects right. of, of social behavior. Mm. And uh, obviously it's ro extremely robust and mm. uh, defining characteristic right. of mammalian behavior. But now the, the framework you took to look at this is what you call epigenetic, mm -hmm. right? So, so what do you mean with that? So um, my interest in epigenetics is, is really um, in trying to understand how these initial experiences with infants lead to long-lasting changes uh, in the behavior of the mother. And so I see it as sort of an initial experience that can program uh, this, this memory um, and really maintain differences in how neurons are, are functioning in response to uh, infant stimuli. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, um, these epigenetic changes... Uh, that I'm interested in have to do with sort of a, an altering of the phenotype of the neuron um, within the circuit that regulates maternal behavior. So the, the work is pointing in two directions here. So one mm -hmm. is understanding maternal behavior in mammals mm -hmm. and its origins. And the other is understanding epigenesis in uh, animal development more broadly. And uh, I, in, in your talk, I got the impression that there are exciting new developments in both of these topics. Yes. So, I mean, if we if we go with the epigenesis one, uh, so can you just define for us more clearly what's the difference between genetics and epigenesis? And sure. I, I think about it really on a molecular level. So when I think about epigenetics, I'm thinking about alterations in gene expression that are not uh, associated with changes in DNA sequence. Um, and so for me, the most straightforward difference between genetics and epigenetics uh, is, is this sort of molecular distinction, the distinction between um, alterations that are, are not coded within the DNA sequence, but that are affecting um, when and how genes are transcribed versus the actual a, a gene or a gene mutation. Um, and so, for example, I, I could give you an example. Um, within the context of maternal behavior, one of the things that we know is that, um, is that dopamine neural systems are important uh, for the display of maternal behavior. So if we took a genetic standpoint, uh, we could look at mutations in, in the dopamine gene, dopamine receptor genes, and see how that influences maternal behavior. 
Um, if we took an epigenetic standpoint, we might say that uh, some sort of experience might upregulate dopamine receptors for long periods of time or upregulate um, uh, the dopamine gene for long periods of time, but there's no actual mutation or alteration in the sequence of the gene. Um, does that... It does that, make sense, but I'm, I'm still trying to get, get the difference between epigenetics and you know, development, sort of when is an aspect of development epigenetic rather than just developmental? Um, I, again, I sort of go, I sort of yeah. always go back to this idea that it's, that it's a molecular difference. And so when an aspect of development um, is epigenetic, uh, it, it really has to do with um, alterations to either the histone proteins or methyl marks that are on the DNA. And, so and you're these, taking a very literal, it's got an impact on the DNA inside the cell uh, yes. in some way, and then it's epigenetic. Whereas a developmental change, which for instance involved, uh, I don't know, uh, alterations to the strength of some synapses, it's not epigenetic. Well, it it could be depending upon right. what okay. the mechanism is. Oh, so I, okay. I think I'm taking yeah. a, sort of a mechanistic definition, and that's how I think about it, um, is from this sort of mechanistic approach. Um, and so, uh, so you know, again, w when I think about epigenetics, I'm thinking about these mechanisms that drive changes in gene expression that can be influenced by um, the environment. Right. Um, so, and I talked about that a little bit today in terms of neural activity can drive these changes. Um, but uh, there's, I think, a certain amount of epigenetic mechanisms that are involved in sort of the naturally developing organism. And I think it's sort of convenient that activity-dependent changes can, can modify these processes that are occurring naturally. And in, in the theme of our, our week, which is uh, evolution and development, or EvoDevo, what's interesting about these epigenetic processes is that they can uh, be passed down through the generations. They can be selected for. And so, and you think that's the case. I mean, in your talk, you made a clear case as to why that might be true of kind of maternal behavior in mammals. Yes. But, but what was it led you to the suspicion that, that we could analyze maternal behavior from an epigenetic approach? I, I think um, in, in terms of uh, maternal behavior, I think that it really comes down to thinking about it as a learning and memory question. Um, and, you know, when you think about learning and memory, there's a couple of sort of, um, no, you know, known mechanisms that underlie the consolidation of learning. And so one of these has to do with um, new uh, protein synthesis, the turning on of genes. Um, and uh, those processes are um, sometimes regulated by CREB um, and CREB recruits uh, CREB binding protein, which is a histone acetyl transferase. And so um, the question of how these new uh, proteins become synthesized, how these genes get turned on, and whether or not that process lasts for a long time, and how that plays a role in, in the consolidation of learning and the maintenance of memories, those things are, are, um, are being explored uh, from an epigenetic perspective. And I've always been very interested in learning and memory. And so I spend a lot of time um, reading about these things. And, and I had never thought about epigenetics from that standpoint before, but it's sort of like a cellular memory, really. Um, and when I thought about it in that context, and I thought about my own research having to do with, um, with the same sort of question, really, which is this experience that's driving this behavioral change that lasts for a long period of time, it seemed that um, 
there might be an epigenetic mechanism underlying it. So the the clue, or one of the clues for why it might be epigenetic rather than some other form of, of, of learning and memory, was that, I guess, uh, it happens in mammalian species, uh, all different mammalian species. It happens, I guess, quite abruptly mm-hmm. at the point where a, a mother gives birth. They suddenly begin to express these maternal behaviors. Mm-hmm. And once the change has happened, it stays with you. Yes. Uh, I guess for the rest of your life if you're a mother. Yes, yes. And and, and for, for you that was a if you like a those were a cluster of markers which suggested epigenetics rather than some other mechanism. Yes, and I should add to that um another clue really um was the fact that um hormones are involved in facilitating this mother infant right. bond and facilitating the consolidation of maternal uh learning and um it's been established for quite some time that these steroid signaling pathways um, uh, you modify chromatin, and that's one of the ways that they lead to these sort of long-lasting uh, effects. And so um, it seemed as another clue that, um, particularly since I'm interested in this idea of hormones and experience somehow being interchangeable, um, that and, and I've been really interested in whether or not there's a common molecular mechanism through which hormones or experience might be impacting behavior, it seemed as though um, maybe this would be a good candidate mechanism. And, and and in support of this idea that it might be uh, involving CREB and CREB binding protein, um, there's also evidence that uh, CREB is increased in the medial preoptic area, the central site for maternal behavior, and that that uh, increase in CREB, you see this in virgin mice that are interacting with infants, and you also see it in postpartum animals that are interacting with infants. Can you just unpack what you mean by CREB? Oh, so. yes. <laughs> Sorry. So um, so CREB is activated um, through uh, CREB for, uh, stands for a cyclic AMP response element um, binding protein. And uh, CREB is a transcription factor that's activated um, by neural activity. And so um, intracellular signaling cascades as a result of neurotransmitter binding can activate CREB. And when CREB is phosphorylated, um, it can uh, turn on genes. Um, And CREB, we know, this CREB-mediated gene transcription, we know, plays an important role in the consolidation of, um, of memories. If you mutate CREB, um, you get disruptions in uh, ability to learn and consolidate. Mm-hmm. But now, if we talk about maternal behaviors and, and also pregnancy, what is the overall hormonal profile that goes along with that? Because it's it's not like a single hormone that will impact that, right? No, it's, it's definitely not a single mm-hmm. hormone. Um, however, that being said, uh, the rise in estradiol, I think, plays a really important role. And, and there are th- other hormones that can act, I think, downstream mm-hmm. of that. So, for example, um, one of the things that estrad- this rise in estradiol does is that it in, uh, can turn on oxytocin uh, receptor gene expression. And so it sort of uh, plays this role in priming the circuit. Um, and so then when we get these surges in oxytocin, mm-hmm. we can uh, the receptors are there and present. Mm-hmm. So I sort of always think about things from estradiol's perspective since it's sort of the first uh, wave and needed for some of these other hormone effects. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, estradiol could also be a switch sitting at the beginning of a long cascade of responses to that switch. So. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yeah. As, as you describe it mm-hmm. also now. Mm-hmm. So then if you... If you don't want to look at, let's say, the intrinsic 
components contributing to changes in behavior and the experiential components <laughs> that are in the environment and that would be key in an epigenetic perspective how do you see this trade off against each other is it really like very strictly regimented like okay in this phase we're under hormonal control uh, now birth has taken place and now we're going to be under environmental control or are they more interleaved I, f I think they're more interweaved, although I'm mm. not entirely sure what you mean by environmental control. You mean mm. the experience? Experience, the, the yes, experience the environment, right? Right, right. so um, I think that uh, when it comes, I, I, I mean, I, I think that the hormones are, are allowing for the experiences to have a greater impact. And I don't think that the hormones, I think the hormones probably play a role in increasing attractiveness of infant stimuli um, and in the rat model, which is really where we know the most about uh, the role of hormones, I think they're probably playing a role in reducing uh, fear and avoidance tendencies towards the infants. But um, but it's the experience of interacting with the infants in the context of those hormonal changes that really um, increases maternal care mm -hmm. uh, and leads to these long-term changes. And so if you just had those hormones, so for example, if you were to, um, this, and this work was done by Alison Fleming, if you were to um, remove the pups just as the female was giving birth, and so when she did these experiments, she actually sort of had females giving birth in this cage where the pups could fall through. So she wasn't able to um, interact with the pups at all, um, but she did deliver them and give birth to them. You remove those pups, um, immediately you don't give her an opportunity to interact. She doesn't show um, any changes in her maternal responsiveness towards infants once those hormones have waned. Mm -hmm. So clearly those hormones are, can play a facilitatory role, but I, I think their role is fairly useless unless infant stimuli are present for her to interact with under those hormonal changes. So these, these rats that delivered the pups and never handled themselves would not show any kind of, let's say, um, enhanced maternal response in future interaction with any other pups. Yes, this that's is correct. What you're saying. They okay. they behave as though they've uh, as though they're virgins. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. Yes. So then, what's what's the key data that that you have um, obtained to to make the case for this sort of epigenetic interpretation of maternal behavior? Right now, my um, I think my key work is really with the um, using sodium butyrate, a histone deacetylase inhibitor, and so mm -hmm. um, this is a drug which uh, inhibits the deacetylation of histone proteins, allowing for increases in histone acetylation um, under certain uh, events. For example, the experience of interacting with infants, mm -hmm. um, and so. Uh, when females are interacting um, with infants in the context of this uh, particular drug, we see a facilitation of this learning effect, suggesting that there, there may be a histone acetylation component that naturally occurs when females are interacting um, with infants, leading to these long-term changes. Mm -hmm. So I think, uh, for, because we're not molecular uh, scientists, this, this is difficult for us, but the, the exciting thing I thought from your talk is that you, you think you've identified a cellular mechanism where uh, experience is impacting directly or, or indirectly on the DNA and turning on and off the genes that, that uh, generate maternal behavior. And so maybe we should just explore that because there are key, key ideas in your talk, like the idea of epigenetic marks, which seem to be very general 
and mm -hmm. quite powerful ways through which uh, developmental mechanisms and experience can impact on the expression of genes and therefore could lead to uh, uh, heritable influences. So it's a way in which the environment can select for different phenotypes. So can you explain this idea of epigenetic marks and how that relates to these processes you're describing in the cell? Sure, definitely. So when we um, talk about epigenetic marks, um, we're really talking about uh, a variety of post-translational modifications that can occur to the histone proteins um, that DNA is supercoiled around. And so uh, these modifications occur on the tails of the histone proteins, which sort of protrude out. Um, and the marks can be uh, uh, phosphorylation, acetylation. So the DNA inside the cell is, mm -hmm. is wrapped up inside of lots of other uh, yes, proteins. Is right. That's right. Yes, right. Okay. Yes, so we say the DNA is not... you start easy with that cell, so with me. Okay. I'm sorry. The, uh, yes, so the DNA, the, the phrase is the DNA is not naked in the nucleus, right. which we, we sometimes think, you know, that it is. I mean, I certainly didn't think much about histones before I got involved in right. epigenetic research. Um, and so, but, but the DNA is not naked in the nucleus. It is wrapped around these histone proteins. And so the nucleosome, which is the basic repeating unit, um, consists of a, a core octamer of histone proteins. So there's four proteins. Uh, histone, H, uh, H, H1 is the linker. We have H2, H, uh, H2A, H2B, um, H3, and H4. And so, and then we have two copies of each one of these. And so they form this octamer. And um, they have, again, again, as I said, these long protruding tails. And these tails are where the modifications take place. Um, and then around this octamer, you have about approximately 147 base pairs of DNA. Um, and so the, the modifications uh, can be acetylation, which is an acetyl group added to a particular residue. Um, frequently, it's a lysine residue. Of the uh, of the histone protein tail, um, and this can can occur on histone H three, histone H four, histone H two A, H two B, and uh, and in addition, you could also have methylation marks that occur um, on these tails, the histone protein tails, along with phosphorylation marks and uh, ubiquitation. I mean, there's there's many different post-translational modifications. Mm -hmm. I think right. we know the most about acetylation, um, but I think we're starting to learn a bit about about methylation. So, so, so just to be clear, so the, the DNA is wrapped up in this package with all these histones. Mm -hmm. In order for the DNA to become active, uh, it has to be unwrapped in some way. And uh, by attaching molecules onto these histone tails, mm -hmm. then some external mechanism can decide which of these the genes is allowed to express itself within that cell. Yes, yeah, so you can sort of think about it, I like to think about it in the promoter region of a particular gene. And this promoter region is where the transcription factors are going to bind in order to turn on gene transcription. In this promoter region, um, you can have uh, histone tails, right, sort of nearby, and these histone tails then can contain different types of marks. So the, I, I would argue the mark, um, at least the mark I'm the most familiar with, but I think a mark that is fairly well um, known is uh, this acetyl group on histone H3 uh -huh. uh, at lysine 9 or 14. And this mark is associated with actively uh, transcribing genes uh, across the whole genome. And so excellent genome-wide sequencing experiments have been done to look at this. 
Um, and so, uh, so this mark, um, and, and what a subtle marks typically do is they can actually sort of loosen the association of the DNA and the, and the histone. And so it sort of opens up physically the chromatin, allowing for transcription factors to more easily access uh, uh, gene promoters. And so it's easier for the gene to be turned on, essentially. Uh, so the, the idea is that um, experience with PUPS is having some effect on the cell so that epigenetic marks are being generated, which are binding onto the histone, and then unlocking some genes which then generate maternal behavior. And this is exactly what I, what I think, mm-hmm. that with several experiences with the infant, um, that what, what, what we have is essentially an increase in histone acetylation. I haven't actually shown this yet. This mm-hmm. is, this is uh, in, in, in the works. Um, but what I have shown is an increase in the histone acetyltransferase, Krebs binding protein, binding protein, or CBP. Um, and so, uh, as I said, you know, CBP was my candidate because it sort of made sense with the whole Krebs story and learning and memory, et cetera. And so um, uh, my hypothesis would be that there'd be an increase in, in the acetylation of, of H3K914. This is a mark that's associated with uh, this Krebs mediated gene transcription, CBP action, uh, acetylation and uh, and the consolidation of learning. So that would be my hypothesis. Um, and there's also, you know, there's there's several other marks that I'm interested in exploring. And right. when you think about learning and memory, you always have to think about the other side of the coin too, um, which is I think uh, inhibiting the expression of genes that would be um, re- reducing consolidation or, or acting as a consolidation block. Oh, right. um, and so that's I think. Definitely a part of yeah. Of so there's this threshold like process to... that that it has to build up, and there's uh, there's a another process going on which is trying to deconstruct these. Absolutely. Stones. Now, in in the in terms of the threshold, which I think this is sort of a perfect segue into again why I got interested in this. When you um, when you think about the fact that hormones are facilitating this process, and with hormones we need we don't need uh, so many days of experience, right? We can have very brief periods of experience, and we can get these same effects in terms of uh, maternal learning. And so um, what we know about estradiol is that estradiol can, when it binds to its receptor, translocates to the nucleus um, and is a transcription factor, which then turns on genes. Um, And there's many genes that have estrogen response elements or respond to estradiol, estrogen receptor complex. Um, But part of that complex is actually CBP. So CBP is recruited as part of that complex. And so probably there are increases in histone acetylation um, via CBP just with hormone exposure alone. No, it doesn't make sense because I thought you made a point earlier that the the histone acetylation would be dependent on the experience because it would be the mediator to get the maternal behavior. And you already made a point earlier that just being pregnant and giving birth is not it, right? Yes, well, yes, that's absolutely true. And so, um, again, I I think that the hormones are there, the hormones in this scenario where we have the surge in estradiol, but the pup inputs would also need to be present. And so... I don't, um, I mean, you raise an excellent point, and I think the answer to this probably lies in understanding all of the genes that get turned on and what um, sort of the order of events is. So, for mm-hmm. example, um, estrogen receptor could be turning on a gene, which then affects, um, it could be turning on a transcription factor, which then affects 
another gene um, mm-hmm. uh, could be turning on. Um, it, so they could be turning on different genes. Okay. Um, and I don't, I don't know the specifics. Um, right. And I don't, you know, I think we, we actually know relatively little about um, the genes that mm-hmm. are, are involved in these two separate right. processes. But then, so I, w- I would like to get to behavior, but I don't know. Well, there's, a, there's a few more steps that yeah. I, I'd like to understand here. So the, the, um, the estradiol is a sort of priming or facilitating an impact that the behavioral experience is going to have on the cell. No, right? we, we cannot say that are because we because the, oh, the, the, virgin, be. the virgin mice exposed to pups will also show maternal behavior. So you don't need the estradiol to do anything. Well, you don't need the estradiol, but it still f- plays a facilitatory yeah. role. Yeah. But it's not required. But it's not required. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think that's what we're saying is that if it's there, it makes it easier. So... Well, does it reduce the threshold of exposure? I don't yes. think you showed that. No, I, I didn't. Oh, I did not show that. No, but that's... Because I thought in all cases, it was four exposures that we were talking about. So in my... That's... So that's what I've shown. But it's it's very well established in the literature that estradiol produces very rapid effects compared to experience takes a bit longer. Um, what I showed with four experiences with postpartum females, which is correct, is I wanted to show that if we matched the amount of experience that we would get the same level mm-hmm. of responsiveness between a postpartum animal um, and, uh, and a, and a okay, virgin so, or over-optimized yeah. so experience we, Let's say it's a facilitator. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's finish on the mechanism. So the, uh, And so the cells that this is operating on... Uh, you found were a specific group of cells in the hypothalamus. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so I, the, my effects are, uh, in terms of turning on genes, have yeah. been found in the medial preoptic area of the hypothalamus, yes. And, and why did you look in that bit of the brain, or, or did you look more widely? I, I, um, I did look more widely, but um, I chose the medial preoptic area because it's considered the central neural site for maternal care. Um, and so, for example, if you lesion the medial preoptic area, you disrupt maternal behavior, mm-hmm. Um and if, uh, if you stimulate it uh, with hormones, um, uh, you can facilitate the onset of maternal behavior. Um, if you stimulate it with a dopamine agonist, you can facilitate the onset of maternal behavior. And that work has been done mostly in rat. But are you saying that your hypothesis is that um, some combination of hormone and experience is switching on a population of hypothalamic cells so that uh, some some genes which are important for maternal behavior are now on, and previously mm-hmm. they weren't. That, that's yes, that's correct. Mm-hmm. That is that is correct. No, but also, can you say to follow up on that that it exclusively happens there? So that either um, estradiol release or exposure to pups does not lead to histone acetylase in any other neuron in the brain. No, and I, I don't think that that's the case. Okay. I, th- I think that absolutely there are other regions um, within the circuit that we already know are important for maternal memory in, in, in terms no, of No, but they would show the same effect. They would also show hist- histone acetylase in response to the stimuli. I, I think that they would. Mm-hmm. Um, I just haven't found them yet. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, I've always been very interested in the role of the mesolimbic dopamine system in, in maternal behavior and maternal motivation. Mm-hmm. And so one of the areas that I looked um, in addition to the medial preoptic area was the nucleus accumbens. Um, the genes that I chose as candidates did not change in the nucleus accumbens mm-hmm. um, at any of the time points. So the um, so I most of the work that I showed you was with the 24 hours after their experience, looking at gene expression there. But the... Um, the uh, 
uh, time course that I did with um, uh, 30 minutes and five hours and 24 hours, which, um, which, was a, which was a full experiment. It just wasn't published because there, was, there were no other effects at any other time point, right? right? Um, and, and there were no effects uh, that I f- could find in the nucleus accumbens. Mm. So, um, so I, I certainly think that, that something is happening in the nucleus accumbens. I, can, I, you know, I just could not believe that, that there would be no change there. I just I haven't located the change yet. So um, to get to the behavior, so we, we, we have some activity in the hypothalamus that wasn't there before, which is triggering uh, maternal responses to pups. And the indicator of that, which you've been using, is uh, whether uh, a, a female rat will retrieve a pup that's isolated away from the, the nest and would die without help. Exactly. Uh, and uh, there's various measures of that, one being the time it takes for... Uh, the female rat to retrieve. I think you had three pups. Yes. Um, but uh, you were also talking about other measures of maternal behavior, for instance, licking and grooming. Mm-hmm. And I think you said that these don't all come appear at once. Is that right? If it's a if it's a virgin rat, or if it's if it's if it's just happening that these are maybe a, a triggered at different times. What you usually see um, is sort of this stereotyped onset. Um, which flows sequentially. So when you put the pups into um, a virgin female's home cage, um, which is how we start all of our experiments, and you sort of scatter them out, uh, what the female typically will do is she'll sniff them immediately, um, and she'll sort of run from each you know, pup to pup, sort of sniffing. She might sort of handle the pup and lick it a little bit. Um, but usually... Um, She'll engage in sort of just this sort of sniffing and walking around and investigating the infants for um, several minutes, if this is the first day, for example. Uh, And then what you typically see is um, one of two things. Sometimes you'll see a female come out and retrieve, start to retrieve the pups immediately. Sometimes what you'll see is her actually attempt to build a nest first and then come out and retrieve the pups to the nest. Now, I've worked with um, rats and with mice. And I can tell you that when, when you see this onset of behavior in rat, um, it's very stereotypical and it is very much like a switch. It's a, it's a very um, sort of all of a sudden on behavior. And they're very organized uh, and they sort of, um, when they decide that they're going to retrieve the pups, they come out, they retrieve the pups, they group them back at the nest, they lick and groom them, and then they sort of rest, you know, they become more quiescent in a crouched posture as though they were nursing. Obviously, they're not lactating. The process in rat, I mean, in mouse, excuse me, is is a little bit less organized. It's one of the reasons why I decided to look at experience in mouse. Um, so again, you might see retrieval right away. You might see nest building first. And often when they retrieve the pups, they don't actually put them into the nest on the first time. They put them outside of the nest. And then they sort of obsessively fling bedding around. And sometimes the pups fall out. It sort of takes them a little while to figure out exactly how to get the pups into the nest and how to get on top of the pups in the nest, which is something you don't see in rat. Um, And so once the female has uh, sort of grouped the pups, then she'll start to lick the pups. Um, and then again, she'll, she'll, uh, begin to quote unquote nurse. She'll adopt a crouching position over the pups. And then she typically stays with the pups for long periods of time. Um, and I should note when females are on, when, when I've done these experiments with the HTAC inhibitor, uh, we don't see 
differences um, really in, in these other behaviors in the home cage. So the experience that an, a virgin female getting regular water versus a, a virgin female getting the H-DEC inhibitor, the experiences they have with the pups appear to be similar. So we don't see more licking and grooming, for example. Um, it's the impact of that experience that seems to be different based on their subsequent behavior on the maze. So the HDAC inhibitor inhibits inhibits the histone acetylase. Histone deacetylase. And so uh, this, okay. it's sort yes. of, it's allowing, I, I like to describe it as it's allowing for more histone acetylation. It's not directly acetylating histones. Mm-hmm. It's allowing for any histone acetyl transferases that are activated to be, to, to become activated for longer, to, to acetylate histones without HDACs coming along and ripping the acetyl groups off. But then how do we interpret this effect? Because the histone acetylase is correlated with memory consolidation, right? So if you mm-hmm. now have a disinhibitor of that, you would expect, what would be the effect you would expect on, on consolidation? It should amplify consolidation. Yes, we, yes. But actually, you don't. that's not what you see when you apply this HDAC. No, you do animal. see a, a, an amplification of consolidation. So rather than requiring four experiences mm-hmm. with pups, these animals only require two. Okay. Do you see also an invigoration of the behavior? Like the probability to build a nest is higher? So the experiences that they have, again, in the home cage are not, are not um, different. Mm-hmm. So, it's, so the, the um, behaviors that we see them engaging in while they're having mm-hmm. these experiences are not different. It's just how they respond on the maze. They respond faster, mm-hmm. they, um, uh, and they, re- they retrieve more pups. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now how do you explain the specificity of this effect? So to examine the specificity of the effect, um, because the behavioral effect that we're seeing is really that they're rescuing, quote-unquote, these pups from this sort of novel and fear-inducing environment, um, the first thing that I looked at was whether or not these animals had a reduction in anxiety. And we don't see any changes in their behavior on an elevated plus maze with the HDEC inhibitor. Uh, we don't see them responding um, more to um, objects that aren't pups, but are the same size and shape of pups. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the two main sort of behavioral mm-hmm. specificity okay. experiments that we've done. But it might be possible that what you're looking at is also a non-specific memory effect, right? That, like, imagine you would have your animals perform uh, a maze task or any task involving memory, that also there you would see amplification of performance because you just boost memory in a non-specific way. I th- I think that that's possible, but I don't think that it's necessarily necessarily likely. And I'll I'll explain. Um, I I'm certainly not the only person who's used sodium butyrate or an HDAC inhibitor to facilitate behavior. And what you typically will see in experiments with pe- when people do this is that the only effects that you get with the HDAC inhibitor rely on whatever the animal was learning when it was being um, treated with the mm-hmm. HDAC inhibitor. And I think this speaks to the mechanism of how the inhibitor works. It's allowing for increases in histone acetylation. It's not globally increasing histone acetylation. And so what that what that would mean then is that if other areas of the brain um, weren't responsive to pup inputs, or if, if other circuits that would consolidate memories um, were not being activated, mm-hmm. which I would argue they wouldn't be because these animals are just interacting with pups, then you wouldn't get activation of um, hats in those regions. Sure. And so therefore it would, it, it would basically not yeah. matter. But then if we would take the same mice and do, let's say, a place preference task, 
right? Yes. Under the same manipulation, mm-hmm. you would predict. I would predict that yes. would, they would learn this also more rapidly. I would predict. Yeah, well, I, I guess I would predict that because mm-hmm. I would say that their their motivation is, right. is amped up because that's one of the right. things that I think um, mm-hmm. maternal learning does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then the histone acetylase itself is not specific to the maternal behavior, but it is affecting the a memory component that feeds into, in this case, maternal behavior because that's what you're triggering in the animal. I'm sorry, let me clarify my last statement. When you said conditioned place preference, I was thinking conditioned place preference for pups. No, no, no. <laughs> I would mean just like uh, with using rewards or I don't know. Uh, I don't. Stimuli. I don't think that it would affect that. I do think it would affect a conditioned place preference for pups, which people do all the time. Mm-hmm. So I think it would affect another sort of memory pup related task. I don't think that it would necessarily uh, extend to general a general learning of memory. Although um, I think the the issue with that that would be, make it difficult to ask that question is that we already know that experience with infants facilitates learning and memory generally. Mm-hmm. So we wouldn't know if it was, nece- I mean, we'd have to do, you know, the full experiment right. to ensure that it was But you have just... not done these controls to rule this out. No. Okay. No. Might be a nice thing to try. Yeah, no? well, I, I, I agree. There's a long <laughs> list of experiments that I'd like to run. Right. Uh, so the hypothalamus is a, a conserved structure in uh, vertebrates, mm-hmm. but uh, maternal behavior is a, a marker of mammals. And I don't think other vertebrates care for their, their young. Certainly they don't give them the same amount of attention mm-hmm. that mammals do. So it would be interesting, I guess, in the future to find out whether this is this mechanism that you've described, if, 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 if that's how it op- operates, whether that is something that originates with early mammals and whether it's uh, operating throughout different mammal groups as well as in rodents. I mean, do you have any ideas in that direction or do you do you have uh, uh, goals as to how you're going to a- answer those kinds of questions? Um, I, I think that's a really interesting point um, and I don't have any experiments planned to address that, right. but I think it would be very interesting. I mean, the medial preoptic area is also involved in other sorts of things in addition to maternal care. Right. Um, but uh, but certainly that's, you know, I mean, it's involved in sexual behavior as well, but right. um, but it definitely does play a, a very central role in maternal care. So I think it would be interesting. And to do you at. think this, this mechanism you're describing uh, is, is going to be happening, for instance, in primates? Uh, yes, I, I definitely think that, uh, that it could be happening in primates. Mm-hmm. But then to, to look again at the, at the hypothalamus, right? The hypothalamus... To, to actually trigger behavior mm-hmm. has to actually drive other structures, right? It has to talk with, with brainstem structures. You, you, we talked about central gray um, and associated areas mm-hmm. where you really know oh, yeah. behaviors mm-hmm. are encoded, right? right? So the behavior itself doesn't come from your hypothalamus. Hypothalamus is like setting, a, setting if you want a switch or a signal like, okay, now we're going to go maternal, right? Yes. So, so what's that circuit in which it's embedded that we should consider in this case? So that's an excellent question. The, the circuit and really the way that I think about it is I, I am not that interested in the, the stereotyped behaviors. I'm interested in, in the medial preoptic area and its interactions with the mesolimbic dopamine system to get it sort of this general motivation for infants so that if I put them in any sort of environment, they would be responsive. Um, and so the medial preoptic area gets inputs from every uh, sensory domain 
um, and it projects to the ventral tech and projects to many regions. But the, the aspect of the circuit that I've always been most interested in is the aspect that seems to regulate these uh, changes in maternal responsiveness, this, this maternal motivation or this increase in care. Um, and that aspect of the circuit um, is uh, mediated by these preoptic connections to the ventral tegmental area, which mm-hmm. um, cause the release of dopamine into the nucleus accumbens. Um, and uh, the nucleus accumbens receives inputs from the basolateral amygdala, the prefrontal cortex. Um, and those regions also project to the ventral pallidum. And so there's important interactions between the nucleus accumbens and the ventral pallidum. Um, and and I definitely think that that part of the circuit is, is another place where memories can be consolidated. What I think is probably happening in the medial preoptic area, it's probably the connections between, and, and I have no evidence for this, this is just my hypothesis, the connections between the medial preoptic area and the ventral tegmental area are somehow strengthened so that we're getting um, a more uh, consistent and robust release of dopamine in the nucleus accumbens when, fem- when experienced females interact with pups. Um, and th- this idea comes from some work um, also done by Alison Fleming where she shows in RAT that as females... Uh, pregnant uh, postpartum females as they have experience with infants, that they have more dopamine release um, via microdialysis into the nucleus accumbens than do uh, females that have just interacted with pups. Mm-hmm. So is this, could we then interpret this circuit? If you talk about VTA and, and the nucleus accumbens, we're talking about the processing of value and effect and valence and so on, mm-hmm. not necessarily the information that we want to reinforce, mm-hmm. right? But there's a mechanism of reinforcing a behavior. So would it then look like the hypothalamus is just signaling to the rest of the brain, okay, we're dealing with pups, and, and then these effect-related areas, VTA, nucleus accumbens, say, yeah, and it is great, and using that signal, mm-hmm. you reinforce behavioral patterns that allow it to be more effective in dealing with pups. Would yes. that be the cascade? Oh, yes, you have I in agree. Mind? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, and so there's then, some projections that are back, go feedback to the medial preoptic area, mm-hmm. so that, that makes sense. But then the medial preoptic area could be, let's say, your specialized detector, if you want, mm-hmm. for um, maternally relevant states of the world like oh there are pups around i should do something is this mm-hmm. roughly how we should think yeah, about yeah, it i think that makes yes yes okay but then um so you would see then this preoptic area in the hypothalamus as the signaler who triggers this behavior right yes but then that also means there's already on the one hand a predefined circuit mm-hmm. that says okay there's a pup there there are stereotype behaviors that, that you can, like, mm-hmm. collecting pups and dragging mm-hmm. them around. Mm-hmm. And then there are areas that, let's say, are more frontal in the brain that says, oh, okay, and this is what the world looks like, and mm-hmm. this is the specific properties of the pup I should learn about, and so on, that then I'm reinforcing by talking, by driving mm-hmm. these more effect-related areas. Yes. Well, that, that would be the sort yes. of st- story. You know? Yes. If we talk about epigenetic and genetic, then the more epigenetic part could be would then be sitting more in these these more frontal areas or not so wh- where does the genetic begin and end and where does it become epigenetic i i think um that really when i think about genetics i'm thinking about these patterns of genes that might need to be turned on in order to maintain this maternal state mm-hmm. um and so some of these genes as i mentioned in my talk uh, estrogen receptor beta, I see, uh, for example, upregulated for long periods of time. 
Um, and, you know, I should mention that uh, Francis Champagne's work, which shows that early life experience can modify initial uh, maternal responses to to infants and postpartum females is regulated by an upregulation of estrogen receptor alpha. Mm-hmm. And so um, so I think this sort of long-lasting change in estrogen receptor beta um, would be the epigenetic part, but you can't have that without the actual mm-hmm. gene of estrogen mm-hmm. receptor beta. Um, in terms of the other areas of the, of the circuit, as I said, I haven't found anything yet, but I certainly think that there are likely changes there. Um, it, it's convenient to focus on the medial preoptic area because... Um, Although it's playing this sort of central, um, this central role and interacts with all these different regions, it's also always necessary for maternal behavior. So it, it doesn't become maternal behavior does not become independent of the medial preoptic area that we can that we can find mm-hmm. in, in our models. Um, and so it seems like a really likely place that would need to be permanently changed and maintained in that maternal state for long periods of time. Mm-hmm. So I, mean, I think what, when we think of the hypothalamus, we think of a motivational center. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, what's happening here is that you are turning on a part of the hypothalamus, which then motivates animals to express maternal behavior. Yes. The behavior themselves are triggered by you know, other cues, like mm-hmm. there's a pup there, I'll look after it. But what the hypothalamus is doing is ensuring that the motivational circuits and the reward circuits operate to reinforce that behavior. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it's a very nice idea and a nice exp- explanation of what people might call the mothering instinct. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and but but also what I like about this is it's uh, a nice example of a non-genetic uh, mechanism, which you can see how uh, it, it, during evolution. Uh, th- this happens, and then it, it happens repeatedly and reliably sufficient that it can be passed on to later generations without having to have any genetic change. Yeah, and I think that's an excellent point. So, I mean, obviously, you know, I, th- I think we have certainly moved past, as a scientific culture, the idea of, you know, any one gene being critical for something as complex as mothering. But certainly, um, if there was sort of an evolution and changing in, in terms of responsiveness to towards infants, it would make sense that you would have this epigenetic change. You're sort of using the genes that you already have, but this change then is is altering the way they're regulated in order to ensure care. But just for clarity, also to, to clarify what Tony is saying, because otherwise I might not agree with him, <laughs> isn't it the case that we could argue that basically genetically a certain potential set of behaviors and, and uh, uh, potential behaviors are defined? But now you need very specific environmental triggers Mm -hmm. to actually unveil that set of behaviors or not. Yes, yeah. This would be the epigenetic switch. Mm -hmm. We we agree on that. I agree. Don't you agree agree with that? Mm -hmm. Or you have something else in mind? But that's not non-genetic. It's just you need an environmental trigger to now also start to run a specific, also genetically predefined program. You have to have uh, an environment which is predictable in such a way that this happens, despite there not being any genetic modification. But it happens, and therefore you can rely on it happening in future generations so that you can mm-hmm. consider it as, a, as something that can be selected. Sure. No, I was yeah. just trying to be clear about what you meant with non-genetic, but that's in the trigger, the triggering of genetically predefined behavioral programs as well. Well, yes. It's I mean, not exclusive. It's not like strictly non-genetic. I think that would be no, a bit I too think, extreme. I think that's true. Yeah. It's not okay. strictly non-genetic. 
I think that any time that you talk about epigenetics, you have to talk about genetics. They go hand in hand. But yeah, what I got right. from what you were saying, which I don't, I don't know if this is the case, but I, I thought that you were indicating that there wasn't some new mutation that, arri- yes, that arose, and that mutation then was, right. and okay. and that's I think the best. I mean, this is why I, I like to sort of rely on these um, molecular cellular definitions of epigenetics. It makes it a lot clearer. So when you talk about a gene mutation, that is that is strictly genetic. Um, whereas when we talk about epigenetic, right. we're talking about um, altered expression of particular genes. Right, but then the next question, in some sense, is okay. How how deep and and primitive, if you want, is is this genetic pre-specification, right, on which we then run these epigenetic switches, and there you showed that that male mice, at least the the lab mice, yes. after exposure, can also display maternal behaviors. Mm-hmm. So this this might seem confusing. Because you could argue also from an evolutionary perspective, we don't need to set up these these genetically predefined behavioral programs to show maternal behavior, yet your mice show it. So how, how do you explain that? Well, I would argue that the, that the circuit that's regulating maternal behavior is conserved. Um, and, and I would argue that what we're seeing in these laboratory male mice is we're seeing really maternal behavior. So they're not like biparental species where we're seeing, you know, individual fathering behaviors that are different than the mothering behaviors. We're seeing the male mice display mothering behaviors. Um, and so what I would argue is that everything that they need to do that is there. But what typically happens is that those processes are inhibited by... Um, so, and, and this is clear in the rat, that there's really two, two aspects of the maternal neural circuit. There's a, an aspect which is in place to actually inhibit maternal care. Um, and this circuit is what's active in virgin female rats um, and what prevents them from retrieving pups upon initial exposure, what causes them to avoid pups. Um, and this has to do with olfactory inputs activating the anterior hypothalamus um, and and. Uh, having an inhibitory input on the medial preoptic area. I don't, to my knowledge, no one has looked at that aspect of the circuit in males, but I wouldn't be surprised if those olfactory inputs um, about pup-related information were um, acting on that part of the circuit and inhibiting the medial preoptic area from responding to infants. Um, And perhaps... um, for whatever reason, in, under laboratory conditions, these animals are inbred. They're constantly um, smelling pups because usually we all, mm-hmm. everyone's raised in the same room, and um, it's sort of a, an artificial scenario. And I think that maybe there's some sort of habituation that has has um, led to a downregulation of that circuit, um, or sort of uh, led to that circuit not being activated as much as it would have been activated. And so all you need to do then is present them with pups and they're not inhibiting, you know, they're not avoiding those pup stimuli. And so if you present them with the pups enough, you can get the other mm-hmm. aspect of the circuit to increase. And so what I'm referring to here really is this a, a, approach avoidance model of the onset of maternal behavior, mm-hmm. which has been established in, in rats. Um, and the model really states that avoidance tendencies have to be decreased um, and approach tendencies have to be mm-hmm. increased. And when those two lines cross, that's when you get maternal care. Right, clear. But it also means in terms of behaviorally, these males display identical behaviors as the female rats, so including presenting themselves for feeding. Yes, they do. And But I would argue that that's reflexive. You can see that in rats right, too. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all you really need for that is pups. You know, you, you, If you orient yourself over the pups, 
the pups will induce you to show those crouching mm-hmm. responses. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. All clear. Tony. Okay. So, so we had now this exploration through through the epigenetic landscape of maternal behavior. But what's the next step there? Where where do you see this go? So there's uh, there's a, many more questions that I'd like to explore within this particular model, um, and some of them I've alluded to, um, and particularly really defining these mechanisms. Um, I would uh, love to be able to look at all of the histone changes um, and really characterize which marks are coming up during these experiences, when they're coming up, and how long they're coming up for. Mm. So, I mean, one thing I should note is that epigenetic changes, while they can be stable, they can also be very dynamic. And so you can have changes in histone acetylation um, increasing and decreasing over a couple of um, hours. You can also have changes in the activity of other what I would call chromatin modifiers, so things like DNA methyltransferases. And I didn't talk about mm-hmm. DNA methylation, but one of the things that I have found, which I did not present today, um, is I found changes in it, the gene expression of uh, DNMT3 um, with DNMT3A, which is a, a de novo DNA methyltransferase, meaning that it adds methyl groups that were not previously mm-hmm. on cytosine residues. And um, what exactly is happening with that change in DNMT3A, I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but it would indicate that maybe there's some methylation um, that's uh, that's being added um, or modified at least um, in these uh, in these animals with uh-huh. experience. So there's, I think there's a lot of mechanism that needs to be sorted out. Um, and, and clearly there's some interesting behavioral right. experiments mm-hmm. that I'd like to do um, as well. And I see some of these questions being asked in males as well. But now, so... Here you are, the up- upcoming light of of epigenetics, right? Um, so, but if you could now define a single law that we should follow to understand brain and behavior, what would be this this Daniel Stol- Stoltenberg <laughs> law? A single law. Yeah, one. To, uh, <laughs> um. I'm not sure if I understand what you mean by a single law. <laughs> well, for you, what, what would you tell your students? Like, you have to follow this rule to be successful so we can understand the brain. What's the one rule? What's the, the Daniel Stolzenberg law to understand brain and behavior? I think that uh, it's worthwhile to investigate a natural behavior um, mm-hmm. when you're interested in, in how the brain um, is regulated. So ecological validity for you would be key. Yes. Okay, yes. and then, so Tony likes traveling. So he will he will come and inspect your lab four <laughs> years from now, and then he's gonna carry a little note that I wrote, and, it's a, and the note will say, "Look, Tony, you really have to check whether this prediction that Daniela made four years ago was really confirmed." So, what's the one prediction you would like to make today that Tony can come and test in your to see if it actually happened four years from now? In in terms of my data, yeah, better. Yeah, <laughs> I think. Um, well, the one thing that um, that that I would really like to do, as I said, is characterize uh, these changes. And and I, but I don't want to just sort of characterize them randomly. I, I want to conduct a series of sequencing experiments using chromatin immunoprecipitation, the method that I talked mm-hmm. about earlier today, where you're really, um, I, I like it because you're sort of killing two birds with one stone because you're asking not only about uh, which epigenetic players might be involved, but you're asking about where in the genome and what genes they might be acting on. So today I showed 
CBP being recruited to estrogen receptor beta. But if I could ask where in the genome is CBP or acetyl H3, K914, where are these marks uh, when a female is consolidating these maternal experiences? I think that that would be a really important contribution because it would mm-hmm. give us so much information um, in such such a more rich and global way than mm-hmm. what I've been able to do so far. Okay, great. Daniel Stilsenberg, thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you for having me. Sure. Well, that was fun. Yeah, that was <laughs> I learned fun. learned so much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. No, for but all the I great think questions. it helped a lot to clarify things, right? To to also get away from this idea like, oh, we have this this one sort of magical cell in the thalamus and, it, and the hypothalamus, and it gets switched, and then it all happens, right? Yes, so I think no, definitely. Get to the circuit, it's, um, it's that I, has been very good. It's it's hard to know exactly what what to present. It's funny because I had all these circuit slides in, and I took yeah. them all out at the last minute, but. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, I, I think that, um, I've always really thought about things from a circuit level and it's just, it's just, it was very depressing to me that I could find no changes anywhere else in the mm-hmm. circuit, which is sort of. But what's interesting is that maybe this maternal behavior is just recruiting other behaviors and, and modifying them so slightly. So, I mean, we talked about cannibalism, uh, um, in various species and, you know, this, the fact that monodelphus just cannibalizes its young when it doesn't mm-hmm. recognize them. It's, it's quite interesting because yeah, you can imagine something... that the retrieval uh, mechanism is not that different from the cannibal mechanism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grab, I grab it and I drag it back no, here. No, it's very different. No, it, wait, Tony, there's a really yeah. important difference because what yeah, I sure. understood about mice, uh, pregnant mice, mm-hmm. Because mice are living colonies, yeah. right? And they all the, the pups in the end are taken care of by all of them in some way. It's not really very specific, if I, if I was correctly, nests, right? So what these mothers do, they kill the pups of other mothers, so there's more capacity for those other mothers to take care of their offspring. Okay, so yeah. the, the cannibalism is is very specific. Oh, I'm, I'm specifically focused. I'm not saying that, that that they're not deliberately killing certain ones, but I'm just saying that the actual. You're saying like the actual the act, actual the, behavior, the, 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 yeah. the sequence of actions that you do. It actually is not that different. You just have I to grab a bit tighter. But, no wait, but I want no wait. I wanted to say what we call cannibalism. There are actually many different kind of sub behaviors underneath that that we should not summarize with that one word. Yeah. Because cannibalism might mean it's for food, it might mean uh, maternal competition, or it might mean an accident. Yeah. Right. And if we call all of this cannibalism, I think we're we're, we're confusing ourselves unnecessarily. No, but I think I'm making a different point, which huh. is that, you know, uh, look, I got to run. I'm sorry. To, to get maternal behavior, yeah. you don't have to evolve a whole lot of new action patterns. What you have to do is you say, well, in this context, I don't do buy that action, at all. But rather than eating, I don't buy that at all, and I will tell you that during our reception. Okay. <laughs> we can Thanks, talk Daniel. later. See you later. Thank okay. you. Thanks. Um, I I might say to that point though, Tony, that the behavior looks really different when you see it. Okay, so well, I could be wrong with that The way that they example. approach the pups, but but I, I agree with what you're saying, generally speaking, in terms of, like, how many behaviors does, you know... Yeah, you've got to think about how, how you evolve maternal behavior, and I don't think you evolve a complete set of new behaviors because you what you can do is you can say, I've got some existing behaviors, I'm going to parameterize them so that I retrieve the pup you know, normally uh, maybe I'm uh, I'm catching something, bringing it back to eat. Now I'm catching something, bringing it back to nurse. Take care. You, yeah. You don't have to uh, evolve a whole new set of 
strategies for fetching that object back to the yeah. nest because you already have to know how to do that thing. I agree with that, and I would add to that point that um, something that's really interesting um, that I've wanted to look at as well that Francis, um, yeah, I think it was Francis Champagne looked at. Um, she has this one paper about weaning, and we really know very little about weaning, and particularly in mice. Um, and what she did was she kept these pups in the cage with the, um, with the mothers um, after day 21, um, which is a typical weaning time, till day 28. And what she ended up seeing, um, and she I, actually, she sent me the video, so I saw this in real life, even though I was, I tried to replicate this, but I think I did some things wrong and I couldn't see it. But the females actually, as the pups get, get older and the females are, I'm assuming, not wanting them to nurse anymore, they actually pin the pups and they basically start thrusting against them. Right. And, I mean, it's just really bizarre, but, you know, it's sort of like we've had this conversation and, and I guess it makes sense how many, how many different behaviors, right, are available to, um, I think, to a mouse. And I yeah, think yeah. that this speaks to exactly what you're saying, that you're not going to sort of evolve this new behavior to get... The, to, to sort of actively wean your offspring. Instead, you're just going to sort yeah. of use a behavior that you already have that clearly the pups are not going to enjoy. <laughs> I mean, downstream, I think there's an argument to be had about what, how many different mechanisms there are and how you recruit different mechanisms. But um, you know, sort of the, the old ethologist idea of fixed action pattern. I mean, it's mm -hmm. not it's not completely right, but it's not completely dead either. But then you can imagine, you know, sort of this action pattern is triggered by the stimulus. I do it, or I take that action pattern. I change it a little bit. I've got a new action pattern, mm -hmm. which does something else. Yeah. You know, so, so I mean, you, what you want to say is, well, okay, maternal behavior evolves in mammals. What what has to evolve for that to take place? And it it may not be that many steps away mm -hmm. from what you can already do uh, as a reptile, but certain mm -hmm. things obviously have to change. Yeah. But in, in animal like Monodelphus domestica, you can see that uh, it's um, it, it's fairly crude, so that um, wh whether it nurses or cannibalizes an infant is based on possibly a single cue, you know, whether it smells right. Yes, yeah. and yeah, I think absolutely. Yeah. I think absolutely that's that's involved. Anyway, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. So I can relax. Oh, you got another tutorial. <laughs> no, I'm tomorrow. <laughs> the CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomedics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European Seventh Research Framework Program. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biomimetics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.